Welcome to this NC Talks podcast. To introduce myself, I'm Lauren Pulling, editor of NeuroCentral, and today I'm joined by Claude Wishick. Professor Wishick is board certified in psychiatry and is a professor of old age psychiatry at the University of Aberdeen, UK. A pioneer in tau research, he discovered the tau protein compositional structure of Alzheimer's tangles and established that it was possible to dissolve these tangles with pharmaceutically viable compounds that act as tau aggregation inhibitors. Professor Wishick is also co-founder, chairman and chief executive of TowerX Therapeutics, which aims to develop new treatments for a range of neurodegenerative disorders, including Alzheimer's disease. So today, Professor Wishick tells us about his 30 years of experience in the field, the latest developments at TowerX and what we can expect from the next 10 years. So first, please could you tell us a little about your background and current roles? I trained in medicine in Australia and then I uh, did my PhD and psychiatric uh, training in Cambridge where we discovered the tau pathology of Alzheimer's disease basically we were the first to to define it and um, then I I got the chair in old age psychiatry in Aberdeen in uh, and moved up here in 97 and since 2002 I've uh, run you know we set up a spin-out company Tarex Therapeutics mm. and that's been my dominant activity since Great so could you tell us about uh, Tarex's current projects well, we've got a, a range of uh, activities. We've got a lot of ongoing basic research, which uh, continues on, on, because we pioneered the development of um, tau transgenic mouse models before. Now they're generally available, but at the time we first developed them, we, we were breaking new ground. And uh, we've got a strong chemistry team looking at, uh, here in Aberdeen, looking at new molecules to take forward. And we're also looking at other pathologies. We have a particular interest, other than Alzheimer's disease, in Parkinson's disease and um, other neurodegenerative disorders associated with misfolding and aggregation of proteins. Mm. So, um, the, uh, the main kind of financial, uh, sort of the main financial focus of activity, what costs most, if you like, is the phase three programs, um, which uh, have just been completed and uh, the results of that are determining our activities going forward. Great, so what do you imagine your next steps will be? The, the results of the phase three trials, the first one missed its uh, primary endpoint. Mm. So for the second one, we actually changed the primary uh, analysis to, be, to look at the strong monotherapy signals that we picked up in the first trial. And uh, those became the primary outcomes in the second study. And uh, we confirmed exactly the same pattern of results in the second study. So um, the tr- it, it was in a minority of subgroups, but in the in a minority of patients, about 20% in each study. But um, 
the, the in the second study, the analyses were all statistically quite valid. The, the um, and what was particularly surprising was that in the second study, we had evidence of. Um, of the rate of brain atrophy in patients coming into the study and randomized to monotherapy. Their original rate of brain atrophy was identical to that in other mild AD studies. But by the time they, um, they came to the end of the study, their rate of atrophy was the same as normal elderly controls. So this together with a lot of other data which uh, we'll be publishing shortly uh, we feel is very exciting and yeah. definitely there's enough of a positive signal here to warrant uh, a further study. It also supports very strongly the validity of the tower approach which we've been well again let's use the pioneer word you know basically we pioneered it because we discovered the pathology in the first place and we were the first to discover that you can that you can attack it pharmaceutically. Mm. Some exciting developments there then. We'll wait Very much so, results. yeah. So you asked about the next steps. So the immediate next steps, therefore, is to conduct uh, another clinical trial that's uh, ra fully properly randomized to, to look at uh, LMTM as monotherapy. The other really interesting result from the study was that um, the dose that we had originally picked as just being a, a control to control people's urine discoloration, a very low dose, turns out to be fully active. And then further analyses have shown that actually on a number of measures these patients actually do better than the higher dose. So we've got similar data in animals, this, um, you know, the low dose. Now, that low dose is, is effective, much better tolerated than the higher doses we were targeting initially based on our phase two trials. And uh, it's well tolerated. It's, you know, it, it seems to have a very good safety profile and it's effective. So that's also very exciting. Mm. So that's that's how we'll structure the, the next trial or trials, whatever we have to do. Mm. We look forward to seeing the results of that as well. So what are the, the main challenges in developing Alzheimer's drugs, uh, perhaps specifically that you've come across uh, with developing these tau aggregation inhibitors? Yeah, they, in, in general terms, they, for me, you know, as, as initially an academic, the, the really shocking thing was simply the cost of doing clinical trials. You know, it's, it's several orders of magnitude more expensive to do a clinical trial, which is, after all, just a piece of research. You know, it's an experiment. And uh, like all experiments, you know, there are some results that are unexpected and some results that, you know, that guide you in new directions is really what happened to us. But it's just a damned expensive process. So, and in Alzheimer's disease in particular, the, uh, the trials need to be long because the measures that we have at the moment are so noisy. Um, you know, the cognitive measures and, you know, people vary from one day to the next and uh, just have different inherent 
causes of the disease. So that means that the studies have to be, I won't say super huge, because if, if you know, the studies we're planning, they, they certainly don't need to be on the scale of the recent amyloid studies, because our effect sizes, we believe, uh, are much larger. So we can do studies that are reasonably sized. But even so, they're very expensive to conduct. And, you know, this isn't like research money, because research money you can spend very efficiently, whereas trial money just goes into management of process, which, you know, is all well and good and necessary, and, of course, to make the results robust. But it's, it's just, you know, it just makes it all overblown. The, the other thing for us in particular, uh, the, the challenge, is that given the exciting new developments that we've got around monotherapy, that, that means that the patients in our trials have to not be taking the standard symptomatic treatments. In our, in, in our trials, you know, either they have to have stopped them or will, I should say, will have to have stopped them or not have taken them because, you know, there's this surprising negative interaction between our drug and standard treatments, which, by the way, we're starting to see also in our transgenic animal studies. Mm. So it's a very, it's, it's quite a real thing. You know, it's not, it, it's a... Uh, something quite solid and biological that you can see in several uh, experimental animal models that we've been doing. Anyway, so, you know, the challenges, you know, in a nutshell, uh, the studies need to be big and expensive, and that, that, I think, is the biggest and hardest thing for patients, really, that that means that you need a lot of financial firepower to, to do this. Great. So, um, sort of more broadly now, you've had over 30 years of experience in tau research. How has the landscape, the landscape shifted in this time? It's, it's interesting looking back that actually the tau story and the amyloid story started at about the same time, around about 1985 to be precise. It was, it was then that the first sequence of uh, the amyloid protein from a patient with Down syndrome came out, and that was a paper by Glenner and Wong, and, um, and we first sequenced tau protein a year later, or a couple of years later. Um, so from the beginning, the, this, these uh, were neck and neck, and at the beginning when I first discovered tau protein inside the Alzheimer tangles. I actually didn't know if tau is the only thing that's there or maybe it's mixed up with amyloid or mixed up with some other protein. So, and I've always had a pretty open mind uh, uh, about it. But over the years, what's happened is that that really what began as parallel hypotheses, um, which were well, at least equally valid, and in my view, the tower is likely the tower approach is likely to be more promising in the end. Uh, but that's not what happened in the field. In the field, amyloid became 
absolutely dominant. And this has a lot to do with the politics of, res of research and research funding and so on. Um, it, it's, you know, the amyloid preponderance was completely disproportionate to the evidence base. It was always the case that that the tau pathology is highly correlated. And we've published lots of papers showing that the tau pathology correlates very strongly with, the, um, with cognitive impairment in people. And that's just become more and more solid over the years. And it's n only now, I would say in the last three, four years, that the... That you know, the kind of the credibility of the Tao approach, which in our view was never in doubt, has now become more widely accepted. And, and what has driven that is really, you know, the failure of whatever it is. I've lost count now, but maybe 25 amyloid-based trials using different molecules, different approaches, different... You know, finally, finally, the field has said to itself, not everyone, mind you, not everyone, but the field as a whole has said to itself, well, maybe we've got to look more broadly. So that, the landscape is now very definitely shifted. So Tau is up there at the high table. The, the other angle is that I think the pressure is now on for, for disease-modifying treatments. I, I think that's the, the real, real driver. There was a very good, useful piece that came out last year. It, it was a Lancet Neurology Commission statement you know which ran to 300 pages but but it, it really highlighted the economic challenges the political challenges the financial in particular you know the distress burden for patients and and just the lack of progress that's not because money has not been thrown at it it's just well of course in my view the money has been spent in the wrong direction it's all been backing the same horse you know in fact my view flogging a dead horse uh, but you know if well and good if an amyloid treatment comes along fantastic you know that's what patients need and patients need a treatment that works and if it works out that they need a double barreled treatment you know with amyloid and tau great but the trouble is those trials are really quite ex quite difficult to to conduct so as it stands there's really not much to offer people patients. There's just symptomatic treatments which last for about six months. And um, then patients just decline. I mean, we just did an, an analysis of a large US, ongoing U.S. study, and we looked at patients with mild Alzheimer's disease who were and were not taking the standard treatments. And once you correct for the baseline differences, there's just no difference, you know, over 18 months in their decline. So patients might as well not be taking these treatments after they've experienced the initial boost that they get. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some patients who do remarkably well, but I'm talking about, you know, the big population statistics here. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear. So, looking ahead now, where do you hope the field will be in 10 years, and do you think that it's a possibility that we'll have an approved drug against Alzheimer's disease in this time? Absolutely. I am hugely hopeful of that. It doesn't have to be us. 
I think that there's enough that's promising that's going on out there that uh, really that the the hope of realizing something well even sooner i'd say i think the 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 earlier dementia initiative target was 2025 wasn't it mm-hmm. um i think so that's a bit less than your 10 years i think we'll be there sooner i you know my own view is that um that we've got a good shot at it given the results that we've had now in three separate clinical trials and uh, well actually four to be precise but three in alzheimer's disease so all that we need to now do is confirm what we saw in the last two alzheimer's trials and i i think that's really you know I, i'm very hopeful about that um, the other important thing, I think, if we can confirm what we've seen in, a, in, a, in another trial, this will open up a whole new path for the development of therapeutic strategies in Alzheimer's disease. You know, other drugs will then come along, the field will refocus, and uh, I, I think it'll be good news for patients. I, you know, I'm not kind of trying to be a professional optimist here. I, I think this is just real. You, you mentioned my 30 years. Uh, one, of, uh, one of my sons is a statistician, and he calculated that over the last, I don't know, 20 years, Alzheimer breakthrough stories occur at a frequency of once a month. So, you know, there's a lot of rubbish out there, really. Uh, no, it's not rubbish. You know, it's science, and it's all very valid, and people are excited by it, and so on. But I think what we're talking about is something that's potentially tangible, that actually impacts on how the how patients are treated, actually treated. So that that time horizon, if we can if we can confirm what we've already seen in in um, in in the studies that we've completed, I, I think that that's not that far away. So finally, you've made a significant contribution to our knowledge of Alzheimer's disease pathology and to drug development. Personally, what would you say is your career highlight? Well, um, you know, as a as a researcher, the last thing you've done is always the most exciting thing because I remember someone when I was in Cambridge, a, a, a colleague, you know, those sort of uh, 11 p.m. <laughs> dinners that you have, you know, when experiments are running and whatnot. I remember him once saying that the difference between science and a detective novel is in a detective novel you can always flip to the last page and, uh, you know, see who'd done it. Whereas in research, when you turn over the next page, it's a blank sheet and it's for you to fill it. So, and and that story of progressive discovery, of being guided by the results of the last experiments, and all along that that has been an exciting thing. You know, really, what what experiments do, or I, the way I put it, is nature. Nature tells you by the way of experiments to get your thinking straight and your thinking gradually approximates to what is actually the case mm. and that's that's the wonder of the scientific method that so 
you know, a big sadness in the field for me has been that that there's a lot of dogma and a lot of preconception and there's a lack of openness. In the end, data are data. So you ask me, you know, what what is the career highlight? I think today, actually, is the career highlight. It's it's the fact that we now have, as I say, three separate clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease, all of which point to the same answer. And they point to the fact that, you know, we've been on the right track. Not only that, I, I think that you know, what the, where we are, as opposed to other approaches, is probably the most hopeful thing that there is uh, at present. Now, you know, but then again, I'm biased and so on. So, but but I'm allowed to be hopeful, and I'm allowed to 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 have that view. And you've asked for a personal view. So for me, it's incredibly exciting to be at a point where three separate trials have said the same thing to you. You're always hoping that your experiments work. You know, you conduct your experiments, and sometimes when your thinking is not straight, as, as you know, we got things wrong in our clinical trials. There, there were preconceptions that we had going into it which were just plain wrong. And so... You know, nature has rudely awoken us and told us, well, no, you are wrong there. Fine. So you, you turn around and you do the next experiment. The trouble is that when it comes to clinical research, that ex next experiment is damned expensive, as I've said. Mm -hmm. But in the end, it's the same process. It's learning and trying again, learning and trying again. Mm. That seems like a great point to end. So thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, nice to talk to you and thanks for your interest, Lauren. Thank you for listening to this podcast from NeuroCentral. You can find more podcasts plus the latest news, free journal articles, interviews and opinion pieces from across neurology and neuroscience at www.neuro-central.com.